Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy. Well, uh, join me in praying. Father God, I thank you so much for your word, Lord, and I thank you the guidance that it gives us and how it teaches us to live and teaches us a better way to live. Lord, uh, help us this morning just to receive whatever it is that you have to say to us. Lord, help me that I don't stray from your thoughts and, uh, and your true intentions for us, Lord. And if I do, I ask, like Bud asks every Sunday, that you would protect our hearts, Lord. Help people to latch on to the truth of your word and to ignore anything in this message that might just be me talking and not you. We give you this time right now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to start this morning with a confession. I am imperfect. Now, people are laughing. Um, For those of you who have listened for the last four and a half years to me play guitar and butcher lyrics... This is probably not a big revelation to you, but, um, but it's true. I'm an imperfect person. If you need proof of that, my wife and mother are here today, and they can attest to the times when I have been impatient, the times that I have lashed out in anger. They can tell you about the times that I've been selfish. They can tell you about the times that I've hurt them with my words. They can tell you about the times I've messed up and... I've had to apologize. They can tell you about the times I've messed up and I've refused to apologize. I am an imperfect person. But my guess is, if you were up here giving this same talk, you might say something similar. Nobody's perfect, right? Does anybody here like baseball? I want to see a show of hands. And if you're watching online, I would like... Enter into the chat if you like baseball and who your favorite team is. So who likes baseball? All right, that's not too bad. Who here hates baseball or dislikes it? All right, there are a few. So I really apologize for the message today because you might not like it um, because we will be talking about baseball a little bit. Who's your favorite team? Yell it out. Okay. I did not hear any Yankee fans, so I don't have to pray for any of you this morning. Um, I know we're a little bit behind, but I'll check the comments later. I'm interested who actually likes baseball and who doesn't. In baseball, I, I love baseball. And there's this concept in baseball called a perfect game. Now, it might not be exactly what you think. Let me explain what a perfect game is. A perfect game occurs when, over the course of nine innings, a pitcher retires every batter who comes up. Okay, So that can be a strikeout, that can be a flyout, a ground out, a line out, a pop out. But every batter who comes to the plate is retired. No batter is allowed to reach base. So a perfect game has no hits, no walks, no hit by pitches, no safe on error. No batter is allowed to reach base in a perfect game. Now that might sound like it's not such a big deal, but for those of you who know baseball, you probably have some sort of inkling just how big of a deal that really is. As of about 10 years ago, there had been around 194,000 Major League games played in history. And at that point in time, there had been only 20 perfect games. 
So what that means is, on average, a perfect game occurs about once every 9,700 games. Now, there are 162 games that a team plays in a season. So what that means is that a major league team can expect to pitch a perfect game about once every 120 years. It's a pretty rare occurrence. I want to take you back to June 2nd, 2010. And there was a pitcher for the Detroit Tigers named Armando Galarraga. Armando Galarraga had come into the league a few years earlier in 2007. He came in with Texas and, and got traded. Um, he, he only came up for what they call a cup of coffee at the end of the season in 2007. So this was really his third major league season that he was playing. And on June 2nd, 2010, Armando Galarraga was pitching a very, very good game. He got into the ninth inning, perfect. There was a, uh, a fly ball that one of his outfielders had to make a diving catch in order to stop to preserve his perfect game. And he got to the point where he had two outs in this perfect game, which means all he had to do was retire one more batter, and he would go down in history and become one of those immortals, one of those very few who had accomplished that feat. Now, the way baseball works, when a ground ball is hit to the right side between first and second base, if the first baseman goes after the ball, somebody has to cover first base. Now, sometimes pitchers are a little absent-minded and they forget to cover. That did not happen in this case. He was very much locked in. He was very focused at this point. He was quite aware of the fact that he was pitching a perfect game. And so what happened on that 27th batter of the game was a ground ball to the right of the first baseman. Miguel Cabrera, the first baseman at the time, ranged over to his right, grabbed the ball, and threw it to Galarraga, who was covering at first base. There's the picture of Galarraga covering. Now, I want you to make the call. Is the batter out, or is he safe? Go, if you can go back to the, the prior picture, then... Missy, just give him one more look. The foot is on the bag. The ball is in the glove. The batter is not at first base. Go ahead to the next one then, Missy. What did the umpire rule him? He was ruled safe by umpire Jim Joyce. I guess nobody's perfect, huh? Do you know what the problem is with that phrase, nobody's perfect? The problem is we use that when somebody gets hurt. Someone will do something, someone will be imperfect, and somebody gets hurt as a result of that. You know, our imperfections hurt other people. And we don't always intend for that to be the case. It's just how it happens. And so often we use that phrase, nobody's perfect, as a, a cop-out in order to avoid accountability. When our imperfections hurt other people, that's what God has labeled sin. And that's the reason that God is against sin, because God doesn't like to see his people get hurt. You know, our culture has painted an historically inaccurate picture of Jesus. I've heard this picture labeled as hipster Jesus, the Jesus who was just all love and peace, and he walked around, and I'm okay, and you're okay. And like most misconceptions, there was some truth to that. 
Jesus walked around and he loved everyone. He reached out to sinners. But many times, the stories about Jesus and Jesus' own words have been twisted to allow us to kind of just be okay with sin in our lives. You might hear, you know, Matthew 7, this is something that even non-Christians know, that the whole judge not lest ye be judged quote, where Jesus tells us not to judge other people. People might say, well, Jesus loved everyone. He hung out with sinners all the time. In fact, even the thief who was crucified next to him on the cross, he made it to heaven. He made it into heaven. He had hours left to live. Like, where was he going to go and sin at that point? He really didn't have anything left to do. He was almost gone, right? There, there seems to be this misconception that Jesus came down here to earth to lower the bar so that we could just all go to heaven. But Jesus didn't come down here to lower the bar. In fact, he came down here to raise it. And I want to show you why I say that. Jesus wants more from us than celebrating and pointing up to heaven when we hit a home run or we score a touchdown. When Jesus started his ministry, he began walking around, and this is recorded in Matthew 4, 17. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the word repent means I'm going in this direction. I'm going to stop. I'm going to say I'm sorry. I'm going to pull a 180, and I'm going to go in the opposite direction. So many times we think of repent as, sorry. Right? It, it becomes a, a flippant, nobody's perfect. But it doesn't become a, I'm going to make a change after this. One of the most famous sermons that Jesus preached was recorded uh, from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. And so, you know, Matthew, the book of Matthew is 28 chapters. And this sermon actually is three of them. And it's pretty long, so we better get started on it so that we get done at some point today. We're only going to do a portion of it. But I want to walk you through this sermon and prove to you that Jesus didn't just come down here to lower the bar. He came down here to raise it. Picking up in Matthew 5, verses 17 to 19, Jesus said, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In the next verse, he says, But I warn you, Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the people who heard that must have been taken back, taken aback by, by that statement. So the Pharisees were kind of the authorities of the law in that time. They were the ones who probably did the best job of understanding what God required of us, and they would kind of hold people to account of that. And if you're standing in that crowd listening to Jesus speak, you're thinking, wait a minute, if these guys are going to have a hard time getting to heaven, how am I going to get there? This is crazy. I have to be better than them? I have to be more righteous than the most righteous people that are here? Jesus wasn't done. He says next, you have heard it said that our ancestors were told, 
you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. You have heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, Jesus goes through a series of statements like this where he says, you have heard it said, and then he'll say, but I say. And actually, in the coming verses, which we're going to skip a chunk of, there are more of these you have heard it said, where he talks about divorce. He talks about keeping our word, where people you know, used to say things like, yeah, I'll do that for you, and then people will come back and say, hey, you said you were going to do that. Ah, ah, I didn't swear. I didn't swear by my mother. And they would have this series of swears that kind of showed how serious they were. And Jesus said, guys, this is ridiculous. Just let your word be your word. He talked about seeking revenge for those who wrong us, and finally about loving our enemies and praying for them. And he ends the chapter 5 by saying this, but you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Does that seem achievable? In your life, how close are you to perfect? Jesus did not come to lower the bar. He came to raise it. You know, there are many ways that we are imperfect and that we see this in our daily lives. The first way is with our mouths. And Jesus addressed this in Matthew 12 where he said, but I tell you that for every careless word that people speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Apparently Jesus had so much influence on his brother. You know, it's interesting. Jesus' brother James was not a follower of Jesus while Jesus was in his earthly ministry. It wasn't until Jesus was crucified and he was raised from the dead that his brother James started to follow him and then actually became one of the big leaders in the church. And some of us might say, like, come on, James, what was wrong with you? But, I mean, honestly, what would your brother have to do to, teach, to, to convince you that he was the son of God, right? So you can't rag on James too much. But apparently, James was so influenced by Jesus that he said this in James 3.10. He said, and so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Our mouths are a big problem. James says elsewhere that uh, if anyone who does not sin with his mouth is perfect because, um, you know, the mouth is, is just full of evil and, and, and the tongue is set on fire by hell. James had a lot of things to say about the mouth. If you have problems with your mouth, read James 3. It's uh, extremely convicting. But our mouths are one way that we struggle with this. The second way is our secret lives. Jesus said in Luke 8, 17, he said, for all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open and everything that is concealed will be brought to light and made known to all. I'll tell you what, 
there's some things that I've done in my life that I am quite ashamed of and that I would never want brought into the open. You know, reading that just sends a chill down my spine. Paul echoed this sentiment in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, where he said, and this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. Can you think of anything in your life that it makes you really uncomfortable to think that people might find out about that? Nobody's perfect, right? Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 7, now keep in mind, Matthew 7, this is the chapter that people quote when they say the whole judge not lest you be judged thing. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. So that's depressing. Now, hold on a second. Wait a minute. I have never cast out demons in Jesus' name. I have not performed many miracles in my life. And you're telling me people who did that won't make it into heaven? What hope do I have? And hold on a second. There's a contrast here because Jesus told that thief who was being crucified next to him on the cross, that thief who had hours to live. I mean, he made it in with seconds left on the clock. How fair is that? I'm not even 40 years old yet, and I have to be perfect for the rest of my life? So which is it? Is there grace and mercy for our sin? Or does Jesus expect more from us? The answer is yes. You see, it's not an either or. I've heard someone say the definition of high intelligence is to be able to hold two conflicting ideas in your mind at the same time. And we want to resolve that. There's a tension there, right? Well, I don't understand. Do I have to be perfect or is there grace? Well, it's both. There's grace. Jesus' blood has washed away your sin. But God wants more from us. God doesn't want us to go on living in the sin that's in our lives. You see, to understand God, we have to understand that God is love, not that God has love. God is the very definition of love. If you want to understand love, all you have to do is understand God. And the whole purpose of God defining what sin is and telling us don't do these things is not to keep us from having fun. It's because he doesn't want to see his loved ones get hurt. You see, sin results in pain. When people sin, someone gets hurt. And it might be the person who's sinning. It could be the person that that person's sinning against. But someone always gets hurt when there's sin. And that's the reason God doesn't want us to do this because he doesn't want to see his kids get hurt. You know, I have kids. If one of you would hurt one of my children, we would have a problem. Okay? We would not be so cool at that moment, especially if you intentionally hurt one of my children. We would need to work something out. How do you think God feels as the creator of all that is? 
as someone who loves us so much that he sent his own son to die for us, how do you think he feels when we do things that hurt other people? You know, we, we often play games in our lives with sin. And there are a few games that we play. Um, one of them is uh, that, you know, we, we use this whole idea of confession. And, and Catholics kind of have formalized this where, you know, Catholics, you go to a priest and you tell people, Protestants, it's way better. We don't even have to tell anybody. We just tell Jesus. And he already knows, right? So it's just like, hey, Jesus, you know when I did, you know, that thing yesterday? Um, I'm really sorry about that. But the game that we play is that we kind of have these, these buckets, these sin buckets. And we go and we fill up our sin bucket with all these sins. And then we go and we dump them out by confessing. And then we go back and we go and we fill them up again, right? I've got to go dump out. My, my sin bucket's getting pretty full. I'm going to go and empty this sin bucket out so I can go add some more sin to my life. And that's the way we treat this. You know, we see something that's wrong in our lives and it's like, you know what? I know I shouldn't do this thing I'm about to do, but I'll just apologize for it. It's, a, it's okay. Not that big of a deal. Jesus died on the cross. He'll forgive me. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 was trying to communicate to the Roman church, and he wanted them to understand just how great the sacrifice of Jesus was on the cross. And he spends chapter 5 of Romans talking about, you know, you don't understand, there is nothing you can do to out-sin God's grace and God's mercy. There is nothing, nothing at all that we can do to out-sin the love that God poured out when he said, I will forgive that and I will bring you back. Not a single thing. And so he builds up this talk of the, the grace and the mercy of God to the end of chapter 5. And it's almost like when he was writing this letter, he said, you know what? I see what's probably coming next. And so when Paul gets into chapter 6 of Romans, he starts to address the potential problem that he sees with the way people are going to interpret his message. When he gets into chapter 6, he starts out in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? And, and Paul kind of explains in the book of Romans to, you know, to the Roman church, he tells them, you know, when you accept the sacrifice of Je that Jesus made on the cross, we are being crucified with him. We are dying with him. Our old sin nature is dying with him. And we are being made alive in a new life, one that is not controlled by sin. So if you have died to sin, why would we want to continue to live in it? A few verses later, we get to, to verses uh, 12 to 14 in chapter 6, and he says, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. In the next verse, Paul kind of backtracks a little bit because he knows that you know, sometimes we're a little bit dense and we don't really get it the first time. And so in verse six, uh, 15, he says, Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean that we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, 
But now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. You know, the way that we treat sin is so often we say, okay, I know that's wrong, but how close can I get to that? Like, I know that that's, like, there's a line somewhere, right? And like, okay, is that sinning? Because I want to get as close as I possibly can to the edge, right? Because I want to have as much fun as I can without really getting into sin. Or sometimes, you know what, you know, just let's erase that line and and get over it. But that's the way we treat sin in our lives is we just want to get right up to the edge, right? Because I want to have as much fun as I possibly can without feeling like, oh man, I really blew it. You know, the sin bucket is kind of the first game that we play. The second one we play is what I like to call, I'm just not that into him, right? You know, Jesus is cool. Like, I, I want to date him, but I'm not sure I really want to marry him. You know, like, he's fun. Like, that whole wash away my sins thing is kind of cool. Like, that makes me feel good about myself. But the being a slave to righteousness, that does not sound like a good time. We end up to the point where we're just kind of half in and half out with God. And that's not what God wants. In the book of Revelation, as Jesus is talking to John in a dream, Jesus tells John to write to the church at Laodicea. In chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither, hot, you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. God does not want little corners of our lives. He wants the whole thing. He went all in with his son, right? He pushed all the chips into the center. And that sacrifice on the cross was a free gift to us. And by that I mean there was not a thing that we could do to earn that. There was nothing we could do to earn our salvation. You can't be good enough to cover up your sin, right? We have sinned against God. We have broken that trust. We have broken that relationship. And our sin makes us worthy of death. And God said, I know that there's nothing they can do to earn their way back, so I'm going to pay that debt for them. But in return for our payment for that debt, or for his payment for that debt, God wants our lives. And so you can see the problem when we say things like, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little bit. Or, I love God, but... He doesn't belong in my bedroom. God wants every part of our lives, not just little corners that we want to give him. Not the, hey, you know what? God, you get two hours of my Sunday, and then I'll see you next week. He wants everything. You know, I have to ask, in your own life, would people be shocked to find out that you're a Christian by the way that you treat a waitress at a restaurant by the way that you respond to that person who cuts you off in traffic. How good have we been at giving God everything in our lives? Because it becomes so easy in this world, I mean, it is a world marred by sin and nobody's perfect, right? And it becomes so easy to fall into what Paul calls the deeds of the flesh. And so when he was writing to the church in Galatia, 
in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, he starts talking about the deeds of the flesh, what it's like when we live according to our own sinful nature. And he says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry. Idolatry is just basically putting anything ahead of God in our lives, making an idol of something, whether that's television or whether it's money or or it can be anything. Anything that if God asked us to give something up, we're like, nope, sorry, I love you, God, but I don't love you that much. Witchcraft. Is there a whole lot of witchcraft going on? You you know, the, the term witchcraft actually comes from the Greek pharmakia, which I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of that, but you probably don't know, and Bud's not here, so he can't correct me. Um, That word pharmakia is the word that we get pharmacy or pharmaceuticals from. That word witchcraft implies drug use or something that alters our minds. Um, But it can also imply sorcery. Hostilities. Hostilities, that term is used to mean hating certain people or groups, maybe because of who they are or because of how they generally act. Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and, live, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of you might be secretly thinking, man, that less sounds like a good weekend. Where do I sign up for that? And, you know, if you look at that through the lens of, where do I fall with stuff like this? Man, that's a convicting list. That is, man, there's more than one of those on that list that has been a struggle in my life. You know, the great message of the gospel is that Jesus will meet you wherever you are. From the thief on the cross, who was probably more than just a thief, because generally thieves didn't really get crucified. He'd probably done something more awful than that. But from the person who was being put to death for his sin, because it was that heinous, to the people who are just doing a little bit wrong, Jesus will meet you wherever you are. But he does not want to let you there. And we should not want to stay there either. God has a better life in store for us. You know, there's a difference between an admission of imperfection and a celebration of imperfection. And too often in our society today, we seem to be all about celebrating our imperfections, right? Like, hey, you know what? Whatever goes, man, as long as, as, long as you're not really hurting anybody, which, okay, but you probably are. But as long as you're not really hurting anybody, then you do what you want, right? Don't judge me because of the way I choose to live my life. And that's not the way God wants us to live. All right, so that that was depressing enough. So what are we to do? What do we do with all of this? The first thing we need to do is we need to stop being accepting of sin in our lives. Okay, that doesn't mean that we're never going to sin anymore, okay? But we need to stop accepting sin. So many times we're like, yeah, but, oh well, happened, nobody's perfect. You know, the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Wow. Like, I'm supposed to struggle that much against sin that, like, I could even lose blood over this? God really 
cares that much? We need to stop being okay with the things that we're doing wrong. We need to start thinking through our actions and saying, you know what, that was really unkind, what I said to him. And having tender hearts and saying, yeah, I screwed up, I'm going to apologize for that. You know, we've been doing this series, Bud's been doing this series for uh, two months now, where he's talking about growing up into all things and becoming like Jesus. So I have to ask the question, if I'm really trying to be like Christ, if that's what the term Christian means, right? I'm a little Christ. I'm, I'm a Christ follower. I want to be a disciple of Christ. If I'm really trying to be like Christ, how can I just be okay with the sin in my life? Jesus didn't sin. So how much am I really like him if I'm just okay with committing the same sins over and over in my life. We need to, on a a daily basis, we need to change, the the book of Romans calls this renewing our minds so that God can change us. Because if we're okay with our sin, we create this roadblock for God to help us to change. You know, any 12-step program will tell you the first step toward change is Admit, thank you. I heard someone say it. Admitting you have a problem, right? Until you come to that recognition and you're willing to admit that there's something wrong with me, you're not going to change, right? People aren't just like, there's nothing wrong and, oh, hey, look, I'm all better all of a sudden, right? You have to admit there's something wrong in order to move on and, and to, to make a change in your life. Bud made this analogy about a month ago. I thought it was fantastic, so I decided to steal it. He said that the way God changes us, that we don't have the ability to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and change our lives, right? When we're struggling with sin, so many times it's beyond our power. And so he came up with this analogy and he said, letting God change you is like being in a sailboat. You guys remember this? And he said, when you put your sails out in the sailboat, so think about it. If you're sitting in a sailboat, you're the boat and the sails and God is the wind. Now, if you refuse to put your sails out, how much is that wind going to move the boat? Not much. And if you go and you put your sails out and the wind doesn't come, how much does the boat move? Not much. It requires both sides to show up. It requires me to show up and to put out my sails and say, God, I am not okay with this thing that I'm struggling with. I need you to take it from me. And it requires God to show up. And that happens through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ where God shows up and he starts changing our hearts and he starts softening us and he starts pointing out things in our lives. You know what? You've been okay with that. You should not be okay with that. Oh, you're right. Oh God, I have been hurting people by doing that. Oh Lord, I've been hurting myself by doing that. Lord, I've been hurting my relationship with you. So that's the first step towards change is Stop accepting the sin in our life. Second step, read the Bible. You know, you can't follow what you don't know. And many of us, when we read the Bible, we tend to like to use it as a mace to bludgeon others, right? Like, hey, you know who needs this verse? It ain't me. But I can tell you, there's, in fact, I, can, I should write a list. There, I'm going to send out an email later today and send this verse because there's some people. We use it as a mace when the, the Bible is meant to be used as a mirror, We should be looking into it and be looking right back at ourselves and saying, God, speak to me about what needs to change in me. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, he said, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize 
what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So that's the second step is let's read the Bible. Step three, talk to other people. You can't change a problem that you don't know exists. And I can't promise for you, but I know it's true with me. I have imperfections that I don't know about. We all have blind spots. And the definition of a blind spot is something that you can't see, right? When you're driving, you have a blind spot. You can't see that car coming up on the side of you. Well, the same is true in our lives. We don't just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to fix my life. I'm going to fix all those blind spots. You need someone to tell you. And that can be God. But it could be a really mature believer in your life, someone who knows you well and who has a lot of maturity and knows what God expects from us. Give those people the ability to speak into your life. Give them permission to say, hey, you know what? I know you're trying to live a life that's more like Jesus Christ. Can I tell you something you should work on? Right? Because we all do things that hurt people. I do things, I do things that hurt my wife that I never thought would hurt her. Well, that's just how I am. That's just my personality. I know, and it hurts me. Oh, that's, that's not good? Like, that's, we all have blind spots. Talk to other people. Number four, pray and listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will reveal things to you. As you open yourself up, God is not going to come, in most cases, and bludgeon you over the head with, you need to knock this off. But as we open our hearts and accept correction from the Holy Spirit, He will speak to us. The next one is evaluate what you would do as if you were in front of your boss or your pastor or Jesus Himself. Hey, that thing that I'm about to do, if Jesus were in the room right now, physically with me right here, would I do that? Would I be embarrassed if my boss knew what I just did? Would I be embarrassed if my pastor knew what I just did? Jesus did not come to lower the bar. He came to raise it while simultaneously giving us the boost up that we need to reach it. Right? He didn't just come here to give us a bunch of commands, a bunch of you've heard it said that he knew we were never able to achieve. He came to tell us what he really expected and say, now through the power of my resurrection, you will be able to achieve these things. Now, I really hope that no one is feeling condemned today by what I'm saying. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation, and I want to explain that. Condemnation says, I'm a failure and there's no point in trying. I will never be that good. I can never live up to these commands of Jesus Christ. Condemnation is not what we're after. What we're after is conviction. Conviction says, I'm falling short, but I can do better. You know, I can work on that. I can be nicer to her. I can change the way that I am acting. We should all feel convicted, but none of us should feel condemned. That is, if we're feeling condemned, that comes from Satan. That comes from the accuser who says you're worthless. Jesus says, no, I've already given you the power. Now accept it and use it. Yes, you did mess up there. Guess what? My blood already covered that sin. Keep going. Don't quit. Don't stop. This is not about beating ourselves up for our failures, but we do need to want to do better and to be better, or we won't allow God to change us. 
You know, we all have to start somewhere, and I'm sure in this room we're all in different places in our faith walk. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, he said, and this is the love chapter, he said this verse, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. And maybe we're adult bodies, but we're spiritual children, or maybe we're spiritually closer to adults, but we're younger. We're all at different places, and that's not something to be ashamed of in your life at all. Everyone has to be caught somewhere. And for the thief, it happened to be when he was on the cross next to Jesus. That's where he got caught up and realized what Jesus was and what Jesus offered. Wherever you are, start from that point. Don't feel condemned in where you are. What God wants to create for us is what I've heard called a constructive spirit of discontent. Constructive, something that's going to build us up, right? So that doesn't mean feeling condemned. What it means is, you know what? I need to stop with the cursing. Um, I got to stop slandering. You know what? I, I talk about people and I say negative things about them. And um, I said that thing to her about him. And now she thinks less of him because of that. And uh, man, I, I need to apologize. That was not right. I, I need to stop doing that. I, I got to stop with the perverted talk, with, with the, the gross jokes. I, I know that that's not what God wants of me. Man, those things that I've been doing in secret that I would be ashamed if it ever came into the light, if people found out about, it's got to stop. That media I consume, those things I watch, that's not healthy. I'm feeding garbage into my life. Oh, you know what, those things, I need to look at different stuff on the internet. I, my, my time on the internet, that is not what Jesus wants from me. You know what? I need to save that for marriage. That, that is something that should not happen outside of marriage, and I need to make a choice. That's going to start getting saved there. Uh, you know what? I've, I've been cheating on my taxes. I, um, I have not been reporting some of that income, and that's not okay. That's stealing, and God's not okay with that. I, I've justified it because I think I'm already taxed too much, but I'm not sure God buys that justification, even though it works for me. You know what? I, I, I've been ripping off Netflix and Amazon by using someone else's account and not paying for those services. And I realize it's just a few bucks to them and they're massive companies, but it's not right. It's stealing. You see, God wants us to have this spirit of discontent with our lives where we look at it and say, I'm not going to feel condemned, but I'm going to look every day and see where things can get a little bit better. So I want you to be honest. I'm going to take a little poll here, hand poll. Anyone thinking, you know what, I don't really like baseball, but I wish you'd go back to talking about baseball? <laughs> okay, all right, I got one. Thank you so much. So let, let's go back to talking about baseball, and we'll wrap this thing up. Do you remember that game that we were talking about at the beginning of this? The runner was called safe, the, tw the 27th batter of the game, right? This, this wasn't just like a blown call that happened a few innings before and you don't know what might have happened after that. This was, if, if the umpire makes the correct call, it is a perfect game and it's in the record books. Jim Joyce, the umpire, he was certain of his call. Manager Jim Leland came out to argue, but Joyce disagreed and that was the end of it. Armando Galarraga, the pitcher, he didn't argue at all. In fact, that picture right there, that's how he reacted once the call was made. 
He later said, I do not yell or curse or kick at the dirt because what do I have to yell or curse or kick about? I can disagree, I can question, but I cannot argue because I cannot complain. I am filled with so many blessings, so here's what I do. I smile. I have not done anything wrong. Instead, I have done everything right. He retired the next batter in that game. And so uh, this game became known as the imperfect game or the 28-out perfect game. And after the game ended, and after umpire Jim Joyce was able to view the replay of the play, Joyce, a 22-year veteran, tearfully admitted, quote, I did not get the call correct, and said, I took a perfect game away from that kid over there who worked his butt off all night. Jim Joyce called that ruling the biggest call of my career, claiming that, quote, I thought he beat the throw. I was convinced he beat the throw until I saw the replay. It was the biggest call of my career, and I kicked the expletive out of it, Joyce said to reporters, looking and sounding distraught as he paced in the umpire's locker room. I just cost that kid a perfect game. Before he showered, Jim Joyce went and found Armando Galarraga, and he apologized to him. Galarraga later said, nobody's perfect. Everybody's human. I give the guy a lot of credit for saying I need to talk to you. You don't see an umpire tell you that after the game. I gave him a hug. He later told reporters, I know that I pitched a perfect game. I believe I got it. I said before, I got a perfect game. I'm going to show my son. Maybe it's not in the book, but I'm going to tell my son one time, I got a perfect game. You know, before a Major League Baseball game starts, someone from each team brings a lineup card out to the home plate umpire. The home plate umpire has to have the lineup card because he has to know substitutions and make sure everything's being done according to the rules. Normally, it's the manager. Well, the next night, the way that the umpires rotate, first base umpire Jim Joyce became home plate umpire. And guess who took the lineup card out? Jim Leland, the manager, gave Armando Galarraga deliver the lineup card. And Jim Joyce broke down crying. And Armando Galarraga put his hand on Jim Joyce's back. A week later, ESPN the magazine did a poll of Major League players and asked, who was the best umpire in Major League Baseball? Anyone want to guess who won? It was Jim Joyce. He won by 19 percentage points over the number two. Two years later, in 2012, Armando Galarraga and Jim Joyce came out with a book. You know what the title was called? <laughs> Nobody's Perfect. In that book, Armando Galarraga said, I am thinking, Armando, if you keep pitching like this, there will be many more chances for a perfect game. Armando Galarraga played in the major leagues for less than five full seasons. His record was 26 wins and 34 losses. He had a very unremarkable career, except for that one night. That one night that was his chance of baseball immortality. 
You know, Jesus used to tell parables, and in his parables, there was always somebody who represented God and somebody who represented us. And I view this story as a modern-day parable because there was one who was perfect, who had every right to be furious about somebody who made a mistake. And there's somebody who was flawed but was sure that he was right. Ultimately, the person who was flawed, who was sure that he was right, realized that he was wrong and came back and asked for forgiveness. And the person who was perfect, he allowed him in. There's a problem with nobody's perfect when we use it as a cop-out. But it is true. Nobody's imperfect. I'm imperfect, and my guess is you probably are too. So where are we to go? How are we going to be perfect like Jesus has called us to be perfect? I want to end with a a Winston Churchill quote. This is one of my very famous favorite quotes of all time. Winston Churchill said, Every day you may make progress. Every step may be fruitful. Yet there will stretch out before you an ever-lengthening, ever-ascending, ever-improving path. You know you will never get to the end of the journey. But this, so far from discouraging, only adds to the joy and the glory of the climb. Isn't that great? There's a climb ahead of you in your life. From now, from this point until the end of your life, are you willing to take it? Are you willing to try to commit yourself every day to being more perfect? Not in a, I'm going to beat myself up if I get it wrong, but a, God, let me know if I get it wrong because I want to get it right. Not condemned, but convicted. Let's strive to be perfect like our Father in heaven is perfect. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word, Lord, and for the conviction that we get. Lord, I thank you that you have told us what sin is so that we can stop hurting ourselves and stop hurting other people in our lives, people that you love so desperately. Lord, speak to us, work with us, soften our hearts, help us to look at ourselves each day, help us to use the Bible as a mirror, help us to talk to people in our lives, help us to talk to you and to look for how we can become more perfect, how we can grow every day in every way to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Lord, pursue us because we love you and we want to be pursued. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining me. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website at horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.